Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello and welcome to Read Smart, the official Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast with me, Razia Iqbal. In the lead up to the winner announcement on the 24th of November, we'll be celebrating each of the shortlisted books in a weekly mini podcast episode. And this week, Toby Mundy will be joined by Matthew Cobb, author of The Idea of the Brain. The Idea of the Brain is about the quest to understand the most mysterious object in the universe, the human brain. Scientist and historian Matthew Cobb takes readers through centuries of wild speculation and ingenious, sometimes macabre, anatomical investigations and reveals how we came to our present state of knowledge. I'll hand over now to prize director Toby Mundy and Matthew Cobb to hear more about the book in this special mini edition of Read Smart. Hello and welcome to the latest In Conversation with the Bailey Gifford Prize uh, for Nonfiction. I'm delighted to welcome uh, Matthew Cobb, the polymathic author, teacher, writer, translator, historian and professor of zoology at the University of Manchester. Welcome, Matthew. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me, Toby. It's great to be here. Well, it, it's, great, it's, it's great that you can be here. Um, you're the author of The Idea of the Brain. Um, and it's one of those, that I know what each of those words means individually, but when you lay them in that order, it's a, it's a little intimidating. So tell us about what this book is and where the idea for writing it came from. Um, well, it's uh, the, the title of the book, which is so intimidating, came right at the end. Uh, so there, it had lots of running titles and even a few titles that I think actually appear on Amazon still. Um, and it was the American editor who finally came up with the title, uh, the idea of the brain. I think we all agreed that was that was pretty neat. And what it does is to sum up the the, the idea of the book, which is that it looks at not simply what we know about the brain, but how we've found that out and the various ideas that there have been through time about what people think the brain does and how it does it. And the underlying theme, which again only really emerged in the writing, wasn't there from the beginning, was the fact that throughout history, when people have been thinking about the brain, so that's really since the kind of 17th century, they've used metaphors, they've used analogies, they've said the brain is like this. So Descartes in the 17th century thought the brain was like a kind of animatronic hydraulic statue. Now we'd say the brain is like a computer. And so what the book does is to look at the history of science through the optic of technology and cultural development so it's not just one damn thing after another yeah. uh, it's actually seeing why those ideas emerged and so in a sense it's the story of how philosophers and, and then scientists have tried to uh, have tried to understand this organ between our ears indeed uh, there's not too much philosophy in it um i'm uh, I'm a bit allergic to metaphysics, which kind of irritated my editor, who would have liked a bit more. Uh, and I tried <laughs> to keep it on the stuff that I really understand, which is the science. And so it's, it's primarily about the way that scientists have thought about this. But clearly, at the very beginning, uh, and occasionally down the centuries as well, then philosophers have kind of put their oar in and had a few things to say. Um, wasn't, but, it Francis, um, wasn't it Francis Crick who said, listen to the questions that philosophers ask, but not the answers? Was that Indeed, it's an absolutely brilliant quote, uh, which I use in the book. And uh, I think that's absolutely right, because, you know, philosophers are so smart. They have been thinking about this for thousands of years. 
and they can always you know kind of puncture your uh, you know your 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 desires or your you know your boastfulness and also get to the heart of the matter on the other hand they play by different rules to scientists scientists are interested in experimentation in answers and also there's much more of a kind of uh, an accepted view after a while when there's sufficient evidence emerges whereas uh, i suspect that a lot of philosophers are in schools of one uh, and they're convinced they're right but then so do you know their opponents think that they're right so uh, I've tried to concentrate on the evidence and the scientific evidence and why we think uh, what we think. So how, how, going back to the sort of beginning, how, how in the ancient world was this, was the brain viewed then? Aristotle and Galen and people like that? Well, I think the most important thing is actually to go back before that and we can see this in, in language. I think it's absolutely fascinating. If you just think for a minute, all those phrases where we talk about the heart, he was down at heart, broken hearted, wear your heart on your sleeve and so on. And these words exist in all other languages. And that's kind of like a linguistic fossil. It shows that up until quite recently, nobody was interested in the brain much at all. They were, we actually, and what it actually really feels like is that it's your heart because, you know, we've got emotions, we've got feelings, and that doesn't really feel like it's up here. It feels like it's down here somewhere. Yeah. So for most of our history, as far as we can tell, that, and this, we can base this on ideas from anthropologists who've spoken to indigenous peoples. Uh, for most of our history, it seems that if people thought about this at all, they thought that the mind and so on was in the heart, was in the body, the heart, the liver. This is what you find in the Bible, the Quran, and so on. Now, as in general, I'm afraid the people who actually nailed this were the ancient Greeks. I mean, they, they, they solved most things. Uh, and they ended up with two kind of arguments. On the one hand, there's Aristotle, who was incredibly influential for the millennia. And he argued that the brain was basically just a kind of cooling mechanism uh, because it didn't seem to do anything. Whereas the heart, when you get excited, it moves. And movement is clearly important in most things. And that for them was the ancient Greeks was seen as a, a key sign. And plus it moves the, the blood around. Uh, and proving that it's the brain is in fact really, really not so much complicated. It's just long and slow process. And even when there was some experimental evidence, this wasn't taken as decisive. And by the time you get to the, the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, even then when you've got anatomical evidence that shows the brain is incredibly complicated and the heart is, well, it's just a pump. Uh, it's kind of a pump, but it's just a pump. So clearly it's something to do with the brain. There's no, there's no moment, there's no brain-centric moment. There's no one experiment where everybody goes, my God, this is true, it must be this way. Instead, there's a slow accumulation. And again, you can see it in culture. You see this in Shakespeare. He has uh, this, uh, this song in The Merchant of Venice uh, where somebody says, uh, tell me where is fancy bread or in the heart or in the head. So Shakespeare knew that people were arguing about it. And I guess the groundlings in the, in the theatre when they weren't chucking, you know, sprouts at the, uh, the players, they knew that there was an argument. They could get the, not the joke, but they got the reference. Right. And so I think, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in your book, Aristotle sees it as a radiator, as you say. And then that the Danish anatomist, uh, Nicholas Steno, views it as a machine. Is he the first to talk about it in those terms? Mechanism? Explicitly as a machine, yes. He says two things about it. Firstly, he says that the, 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 the brain is a machine, but I found this absolutely fascinating. Basically, he says this is in 1665, and he does a dissection of the brain to all these learned chaps in, uh, in Paris. And he says, 
I'm not going to kid you. I, I don't really know much about it because look, it's so complicated. And what he says we need to do, he says the brain is like a machine. And if we want to know how it works, then we're going to have to take it apart bit by bit, just like we would a machine that we've constructed. And basically that approach has been what we've been working on for the last 350 years. And the final part of the book, which deals with the future, suggests that, well, maybe we're coming to the end of the insights that that approach can provide. What's striking is that most neuroscientists have never heard of Steno. They've no idea that this idea reaches so far back. Um, but you can see this method, this approach, this, this whole ideology about how to discover something, which has been incredibly powerful uh, in science as a whole, and in particular in biology, uh, quite how far back it goes and quite how clearly it was enunciated by people at the very, very beginning. And, and uh, as your book says, I, I think Darwin thought that even the brain of an insect was a marvellous thing, didn't he? Yes. Uh, as somebody who works on insects, I was very pleased, pleased to see that. He called them the, the most marvellous molecules of matter uh, because he just said, look, they're, they're really, really small and they can do amazing things. Uh, and I, you know, I never hesitate to every time I see an insect, even if it's just a fly walking up a wall, you think, well, how is it actually doing that? How is all that compact in there? What, what really struck Darwin, uh, Darwin were ants, because of course they can do have a complex social organization. He realized that they had some kind of memory and he just couldn't imagine how all that could be packed into such a tiny structure uh, in their heads. And indeed, we still don't actually understand how that works and that's kind of one of the themes of the book in fact is that we understand virtually nothing so uh readers who might think well oh god the brain that's complicated well it is complicated but at the end i hope you'll be reassured that if you think i don't understand how it works you'll realize that nobody else does either when when, when did um when did people scientists and researchers and others begin to fully comprehend the scale of complexity that they were dealing with um, well, I'm not, I'm not sure they, in public, I'm not sure they really do now. I mean, you know, the, the bookshelves are heaving with books, will with books telling you how the brain works and what it does and this, that and the other. Um, and one of the things that I wanted to do was to actually reveal the, the kind of truth behind a, a view that becomes obvious when you look at every part, all the different ways we have of understanding the brain chemically, electrically, anatomically that in fact there isn't a great theory, there isn't a proper understanding of what's going on. And scientists admit this to each other. I mean, you know, people sit around in, or they used to sit around in bars at conferences in the evening going, you know what, we don't understand, we really don't know much, do we? And I wanted to reveal some of that to the general reader by showing both the astonishing things we can do. I mean, don't get me wrong, we know lots, but when it really comes down to it, how it's doing it, we don't understand. So one of the one of the key things there's been an argument is how much things are localized to bits of the brain. And we all think that there's bits of your brain that are doing various stuff. And there is there is one element of truth to that. And I'm doing it right now. I'm speaking. Yeah. And this area here is called Broca's area. And it was discovered in the 1860s that if uh, people who'd had strokes and lost their power of speech when they died, if you did an autopsy, they had lesions in this part of the brain. But We've known that for 160 years, 
and we still don't know how it works. You can't tell by looking at the neuroanatomy why this part of the brain is different from that. And we don't understand how speech is produced. So even the one thing everybody agrees on, speech is localized here, we don't know how it works. Do you think, I mean, one of your, I think one of your, I think it's in your book about the European brain project, the human brain project, which has cost an awful lot of money and has made not a lot of progress. Is that fair to say, do you think? Well, I would say it was fair. I'm not sure. Uh, my colleagues who are working on it would probably disagree. I have colleagues in Manchester who uh, have made great contributions to uh, computing. So this was an idea that what they promised the, the European Union, uh, it cost billions of euros, uh, that they were going to put a, a brain on a chip. And this caused outrage amongst the neuroscience community. The people who were running it were mainly computational people. So the people who wanted bigger and better computers, which is great. Uh, and the biologists tend to all argued this is rubbish. There were petitions, there was letters to nature. I mean, there's a, you know, quite a big stink about it because a lot of us thought this money could be spent on much better things than this. And so far, I think it's fair to say not a lot in terms of biological insight has come out of that. Now, maybe it will, you know, uh, in general in the book, I was uh, often going into areas where I don't have any particular expertise. So I was trying to be careful, but I also uh, did do have opinions so did say occasionally that I thought that things probably weren't right and I think maybe the money could have been spent better in other ways. I'm going to ask you to come back to that a bit later but it, uh, it would be lovely I think if you if you'd be able to read a little bit for us right yeah, now. Yeah well, one of the many things about the book is it's absolutely beautifully written and it would be lovely to hear some of that. Thank now. you very well it's not only beautifully written it's beautifully produced and very handsome. Profile did an extraordinary job on it it's gorgeous it's a lovely object. <laughs> um, so this is the uh, beginning of the, the book is largely uh, chronological um, apart from the second half where it get, turns thematic. Uh, and this is the, the final chapter in the past uh, part of the book, uh, which is dealing with control and it's from 1930 to 1950. Uh, and it's just going to explain about somebody you've never heard of, but was incredibly important. Once upon a time, there was a brilliant but rather odd boy called Walter, who lived in Detroit. Walter's working class family thought he was a freak as did other children. In 1935, age 12, Walter fled into a public library to escape some bullies. Safely inside, he found himself in front of a copy of Principia Mathematica, a three-volume work of fearsome mathematical logic written by Bertrand Russell and Alfred North Whitehead. Intrigued and entranced, over the next few weeks, Walter returned repeatedly to the library to study the book, poring over the equations and assimilating its arguments. That story may not be true, but this one is. Three years later, in 1938, Walter, now aged 15, ran away from home and ended up in Chicago. Somehow, he found his way to, into the office of Rudolf Carnap, the professor of philosophy at the University of Chicago, who'd recently published The Logical Syntax of Language. According to Carnap, Walter said, He'd read my book and that a certain paragraph on a certain page was not clear to him. So he took down my copy of the book and opened it at the page in question and carefully read the paragraph. And it wasn't clear to me either. The boy's name was Walter Pitts and the stories about him are legion and mainly unverifiable. One account of his life begins, there are no biographies of Walter Pitts and any honest discussion of him resists conventional biography. 
pitch seemed so extraordinary and bizarre that his friend Norman Gershwin said outsiders could think he was the product of some kind of collective delusion. But Pitts was real enough, and his work with the neurologist Warren McCulloch on the logic of the nervous system changed how we think about the brain. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, so uh, how, did you, how do you go about researching a book of this kind? I mean, it's history, it's science, it's... Where did you begin? I began at the beginning. <laughs> Very good. Uh, well, I mean, it is, it is chronological. And so um, I anchored myself to that and didn't start at the end or, you know, I mean, I think at one point I did have some fancy idea of being tricksy and writing it backwards and, you know, starting now. <laughs> but I, all that, that, you soon realise that's silly. Uh, so I started at the beginning. I went back and read uh, books, in particular, a fantastic book about Galen. Galen was the uh, Greek Roman Turkish mixture of uh, a physician in the early years of the common era uh, who was the first person to do an experiment which was able to show in ways I won't describe uh, that the brain is the source of activity uh, in an animal at least and reading about Galen was just fantastic because in my mind yes I knew he kind of codified what passed for medicine for about 1500 years but he turned out to be an absolutely extraordinary uh, figure with all sorts of interests and abilities. So my starting point is I do two things. I'll read the key scholars in a particular field because they've done all the spade work, but then I won't take their word for it. You have to go back and read the original material. If you think something is interesting, a quote or whatever, then you need to go back and read it and check it. And often there's something on either side, which is even more interesting because each reader you know, selects things that they're interested in. So I basically did an awful lot of reading. I bought an awful lot of books, mainly secondhand. Uh, I'm lucky enough to work in a library or work at a university that has a library that has spent vast amounts of money on uh, academic publishing. So the big academic publishers can thank us. Uh, I get a bit annoyed about that, but it does mean that I've got access to, you know, the whole of the academic literature. And there are obvious there's sources like uh, archive.org where long out of date books have been scanned and you can read material from the 18th, 19th century uh, quite easily. So basically I just did an awful lot of reading. Um, occasionally asked people on Twitter whether there are things I had no idea about. And that was extraordinarily helpful because there are so many scholars uh, and just people who know stuff on there who are happy to chip in, point you in the right direction or to correct you if you've made a mistake. So. Uh, as a kind of sounding board for some of my ideas, I found uh, Twitter, not science Twitter, but just Twitter in general, extremely useful. And how has the neuroscientific community responded to your book? Well, it's been fantastic. I was a bit scared uh, because, as I say, I mean, look, I, I work on the sense of smell. I work on the sense of smell in maggots. That's my day job. Um, and although I have a degree in psychology and I know about this stuff vaguely, I didn't at the outset know about it all enough to write a book about it. So I had to do a lot of reading and thinking. And I was worried that sometimes I might be overstepping the mark, but I haven't had one critical review, one nasty comment. I've had a lot of uh, emails explaining to me how consciousness works, uh, but they tend to be from kind of amateur scientists. I think it's the equivalent of Brian Cox getting emails about how the universe came to be and so on. Mm -hmm. um, but the neuroscience community has been fantastically supportive. The reviews have been great. Uh, and yes, it's been marvellous. And just looking, looking forward, I mean, 
there, there's the um gosh i'm just looking at my notes here the, there's the human brain project the european one which has cost a lot of money and yielded precious little fruit but even even quite sort of um uh, less developed even mapping the brains of less developed animals turns out to be gigantically time consuming and, and complex doesn't it and I, I i suppose my my question is um are we barking in the are we barking up the wrong tree altogether <laughs> is, this, is this worth anything all these clever well-resourced or relatively well-resourced scientists should they be applying their talents to some other question do you think well, um, no, I don't. I think it's absolutely uh, justified. And I think part of the problem is the idea that there is a theory or an answer uh, because the brain is an evolved structure. It's not doing just one thing. It's evolved over millennia, you know, hundreds of millions of years. And the re it's, it's extremely important, obviously, because it's the source of our mental health problems. So even if you were to take an extremely utilitarian view and say, well, look, we should focus on practical applications. One of the problems we have at the moment is that despite all our current awareness and preparedness to talk about mental health issues, as anybody who has or as a close member of the family who's got mental health problems, you'll know that there's very little reliable treatments and we have used a chemical approach for the last kind of 50 years and that has produced some tremendous steps forward but all of the major drug companies have now shut down their research on uh, trying to deal with mental health problems so all the things we talk about anxiety and depression we are there's a big argument about whether the drugs we have at the moment work leave that to one side but the drug companies are not developing anything they have shut it down they don't have any confidence that there will be a solution now there is a solution somewhere there are answers to this it's not necessarily drugs but the only way of being able to help is if we understand and uh, it may be that solutions will treatments will emerge by chance and we won't fully understand how they work i mean we don't really understand how anesthetics work and yet they're incredibly important. So it may be that by working on the brain, we can come, we by chance make a, a, a discovery that can help people. And even if we don't fully understand how it works, as with anesthetics, it wouldn't matter as long as it was safe and it did work. So I think both from a, an intellectual point of view, an academic point of view, yes, this is a, an absolutely justified approach. And even from a, from a medical point of view, this is the only hope we've got of, as a way of, testing whether treatments be they talking treatments or new drug treatments or whatever testing whether they work and ideally properly understanding how they do what they do and just my last question i suppose is what what you think um i mean what you think the prospects are for uh artificial intelligence and, and sentient machines as well because i think intelligence and sentience are different things aren't they yes um well, I'm, there are those who think, yes, the singularity is around the corner and then just like in, in uh, the Terminator films, Skynet, you know, the internet is going to become conscious and send robots back from the future to kill us. I'm not particularly worried about that at all. I think <laughs> uh, the, the complexity of even the simplest nervous system, so I'm not even talking about a rat or a mouse, I'm talking about insects or worms, that is far beyond any machine we have yet created. Um, I, I am not at all concerned that machines are going to become conscious. Uh, I think 
I mean, there, there are problems and how would you know? Uh, it's not, I mean, you know, not being facetious, that is a real issue. How would you know that a machine was conscious? Um, but I don't think that's going to happen. And although artificial intelligence is very exciting, um, and you may have seen, for example, recently, the people have used this new program for writing articles and they produce, you know, kind of tolerable text. <laughs> the machine doesn't actually understand what it's doing. Yeah. Um, and this came too late for the, for the book, but there's a, an American researcher who used the program uh, to make love hearts, you know, the little sweets with the two word slogans on, you know, love me or my yeah. gal. And it came up with things like fart booby, ants can stay. And it was just gibberish because although it knew it could put two words together and sometimes you might have an animal in there, you know, or as a slow part of the slogan, it didn't actually understand what was cute. It doesn't understand the love heart. It, it understands nothing. So the result is just amusing and hilarious and hopeless. So I'm not worried about the machines taking over just yet. That is a great relief. That was absolutely wonderful. Congratulations. And thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It was a terrific talk. Thank you very much, Toby. Thanks so much to Toby and Matthew for such an insightful conversation. That's all we have time for today in this special mini Read Smart podcast. To keep up to date with our shortlist celebration in the lead up to the announcement of the winner on the 24th of November, do please follow at BG Prize on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Tune into our weekly watch parties every Wednesday at 5pm featuring further interviews with the authors, experts and the judges. We'll be back next week for a conversation with Sudhir Hazira Singh, author of Black Spartacus. As always, thanks again to the Blavatnik Family Foundation for supporting this podcast. Bye-bye for now. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.